Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today is election day in California as voters will decide whether to keep Democrat Gavin Newsom in office or go with Trumpster Larry Elder as governor. What's at stake for California as well as the nation? Our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. And a critical vote is coming up on the child tax credit payments that have gone out to 39 million families. Will the House vote to extend the credit or allow it to stop at the end of this year? And Republicans are pressing, meanwhile, for a mandated work requirement in order to receive the tax credit, dismissing the important and essential work of mothers and other caregivers. To give us the latest, we speak with Anna Aurelio, Federal Campaign Director of the Economic Security Project. Also, we continue our coverage of the struggle of black farmers across the United States. We speak with Lorette, Executive Director of the Rural Coalition. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Biden came to California in a last-minute boost to the campaign against recalling Governor Gavin Newsom. At a rally in Long Beach, Biden called the leading Republican candidate to replace Newsom, Larry Elder, a clone of former President Donald Trump. This year, the leading Republican running for governor is a, uh, the closest thing to a Trump clone that I've ever seen in your state. No, I really mean it. And uh, he's leading the other team. He's the clone of Donald Trump. Can you imagine him being governor of this state? You can't let that happen. Biden ticked off what's at stake. Elder opposes mask and vaccine mandates to fight the coronavirus. He supports expanded oil drilling off the California coast and once dismissed sexual harassment, saying that smart women ignore boorish behavior, off-color jokes, and stupid remarks by men. Today is the last day to vote in person, hand in a ballot at the polls, or put it in the mail. In recent days, Elder has suggested election fraud echoing Trump's false claims of vote rigging in his loss to Biden. President Biden will pitch his massive domestic spending package with a visit to a renewable energy lab in Colorado today. He's highlighting how investments in clean energy will help combat climate change. Yesterday, Biden joined Newsom for an aerial tour of the destruction caused by the Tahoe area Caldor wildfire. Secretary of State Antony Blinken pushed back against harsh Republican criticism of the Biden administration's handling of the military withdrawal from Afghanistan. 
New York Republican Lee Zeldin said what he characterized as the administration's weakness in handling the withdrawal would encourage U.S. adversaries. And and it, it is so greatly unfortunate, the consequences, and I believe that you, sir, should resign. That would be leadership. Blinken shifted the blame to the Trump administration, saying it set the deadline for a U.S. withdrawal but didn't initiate any planning for it. Los Angeles Democrat Brad Sherman asked Blinken about that. Did the Trump administration leave on your desk a pile of notebooks as to exactly how to carry out that plan? Uh, Did we have a list of which Afghans we were going to uh, uh, evacuate? Uh, Did we have a plan to get Americans from all over Afghanistan to Kabul and out in an orderly way? How meticulous was the planning for the Trump administration declared uh, May 1st uh, withdrawal? Blinken's response? We inherited a deadline. We did not inherit a plan. So (laughs) no no plan at all. Uh, It's amazing that it wasn't much, much worse. Blinken maintained the administration had done the right thing in ending 20 years of war. The Kremlin says Russian President Vladimir Putin is in self-isolation after people in his inner circle became infected with the coronavirus. Putin is fully vaccinated with Russia's Sputnik V. A Kremlin spokesman said Putin is absolutely healthy, but didn't say when he began self-isolating, when he tested negative, or how long he would remain in self-isolation. On Monday, he attended several public events, most of them indoors, and where it appeared from images on TV that no one wore masks. He shook hands with Russian Paralympians, pinned medals on them, attended military exercises along the defense minister and other officials, and met with Syrian President Bashar Assad, whose hand he also shook. Tropical storm Nicholas hit the Texas coast as a hurricane and dumped more than a foot of rain along the same area swamped by Hurricane Harvey in 2017. The National Hurricane Center says the storm made landfall early this morning on the eastern part of the Matagorda Peninsula and was soon downgraded to a tropical storm. Galveston has seen nearly 14 inches of rain so far, causing flooding. The mayor told NBC the city had been battered by higher winds than expected. This is not our first hurricane, as many of these coastal cities are. We have quite a preparation in place. Uh, And the winds kind of caught us by surprise. We didn't realize the winds would be this strong as they came through. More than 400,000 people lost power in Texas. Nicholas is also drenching storm-battered Louisiana and bringing the potential for life-threatening flash floods. Resort officials have renamed California ski resort Squaw Valley to Palisades Tahoe. The name change came after decades of demands from California tribes that the resort change the name, which is a derogatory term for Native American women. The Washoe tribe will continue to work with the resort and local officials to remove the derogatory word from other nearby places. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Today, a big day in California. It's election day in California's recall election that will determine whether Democrat Gavin Newsom remains in office or be replaced by Republican frontrunner and Trump supporter Larry Elder. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar stumped for Newsom, as did Vice President and former Senator from California Kamala Harris. And yesterday, President Biden was in the state to show his support for 
Gavin Newsom. The outcome of the vote hinges on turnout. As of Tuesday morning, poll tracker 538, which has been tracking Newsom's chances of winning based on analysis of a wide range of polls, shows the option to keep the governor polling at an average of 57.3%. 538 reports that support for removing Newsom now stands at an average of just 41.5%, while individual polls that contribute to the poll tracker's analysis have also shown similar results. But we all know what happened in the last two presidential elections where the polling was just wrong. It was just off. So people who are sitting at, at home and considering not voting today, you could make the difference with whether uh, California um, moves in the red direction, in the Trumpster direction, or keeps uh, the Democrat uh, Newsom in office. Meanwhile, several high-profile Democratic Party leaders have come out in full support of Newsom. The future of California and the U.S., many say, is at stake, and we'll be discussing this with our guest, Dr. Gerald Horn. Now, for more information on where and how to vote, as well as finding a polling place near you, visit sos.ca.gov. That is sos.ca.gov. Gov. And keep in mind that polling places are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. across the state, an election that's being closely watched across the nation. Let us go to a clip uh, now from CNN on six things to watch uh, today for in California's recall election. The simple no. No on this recall. California is about to vote on whether or not to recall Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. And 46 candidates are on the ballot to potentially take his place. Yes, you heard me right. 46. Everyone from a self-proclaimed JFK-style Democrat YouTuber. If I were to become governor, I'd be the only governor making YouTube videos every day. To former Olympian and reality TV star Caitlyn Jenner. California needs a disruptor a compassionate disruptor. All of them have thrown their hats into this recall ring. Now, if a majority of California voters vote to recall Gavin Newsom, then whichever new candidate receives the most votes wins. It's that simple. Here's a fun but highly unlikely to happen fact. If every registered voter in California votes and the votes are split between all 46 candidates, the winner could win with as low as 2.2% of the vote. This election is determined on our ability to get out a vote. Now, here's what could actually happen. The Democratic establishment has worked very hard to keep any serious Democrats from running so that the Democratic vote would be uniform behind Newsom, that is, against the recall. Therefore, the frontrunners are all Republicans, and if Governor Newsom is recalled, the heavily blue state of California could have a Republican governor that a minority of the state voted for. Newsom and his team know they need to bring out the heavy hitters to energize that Democratic base. So they've got Joe Biden and some high-profile senators like Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar coming to California to back Newsom. Public polling appears to be moving in the right direction for Newsom to keep his office and to keep the nearly four dozen people vying to replace him on the sidelines. 
Well, there we go. And uh, what I'd like to do now is to welcome our guest, Dr. Gerald Horn, who's the Morris Professor of History and African-American Study at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Um, he's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century which won the 2021 American Book Award. And he is just uh, a terrific analyst and a member of our weekly roundtable team. Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, we know, uh, Dr. Horn, before we get into the California election, that uh, you likely are in an area now being hit uh, by a tropical storm. It was, uh, you know, was Nicholas, I think is the name, uh, was a hurricane, but now has been downgraded. So how are you all doing where you are right now? Well, it's all good. Um, fortunately, the prognostication was overblown. It was fundamentally a heavy rainstorm that has now dissipated. So thus far, all signals go. Very good. So getting now to the uh, topic at hand, a really big day here. And uh, Dr. Horn, a lot is uh, depends on turnout with whether uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, blue, California being uh, known as a blue state, a Democrat, will be replaced by Trumpster, uh, Larry Elder. And uh, by the way, Elder is already going on about uh, suing and and if if the election doesn't go his way. And also, as of yesterday, he refused to say whether he would accept the election results. And he, of course, he's continuing the big lie, as it's called, uh, that Donald Trump really won uh, the last presidential election. And it seems as though this is part of the GOP um, uh, strategy uh, moving forward. Uh, Dr. Horn, just your thoughts about what's at stake here. Well, this is very serious. I think we have to look at today's election in the context of January 6th. That is to say, January 6th, in many ways, was an attempted coup. And we also know that within a few days, on September 18th, the coopsters are returning to Washington, D.C. to rally support for those who were arrested and detained on January 6th. I think we should take very seriously the words of the right-wing analyst Kevin Williamson of the National Review, who wrote recently in the New York Times that there will be a series of attempted coups by various means in the United States of America going forward. So even if Gavin Newsom, Newsom is not recalled, I don't think that that's the end of the story. And I think we should also take seriously these claims of vote rigging, because what the right wing is saying is that if they do not prevail in elections, that means that the election was rigged. That was the cry of Donald J. Trump before the first Tuesday in November of 2020. That seems to be the cry of Larry Elder in 2021. And that gives sustenance to my previous point that the right wing feels that they are the natural party of power, that they represent the 
bulk of the Euro-American community, which after all was in the vanguard when the land was taken from the Native Americans and the Africans were enslaved. And so therefore they do not accept the liberal consensus that when the United States moved away from Jim Crow and moved away uh, after centuries from genocide against Native Americans, that this was a logical extension of 1776. The conservatives implicitly are saying no. Uh, they want to turn the clock back, and if we are not careful, they will succeed in doing so. Right, yes, and, and Dr. Horn, uh, given the point you just made, I mean, California uh, being the um, fourth largest economy in the entire world, so a lot of people are really watching what will happen here. Um, say a, a bit about the national implications for what happens in, in California uh, moving forward, because here you have, um, for example, uh, Larry Elder, who is a Trumpster, right? Um, who in a lot, in so many ways, even though he is a black man, kind of represents the, the so-named lost cause, the, 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 those who seem to be continuing fighting the civil war altogether. And indeed, uh, some of the Black Lives Matter campaigners have said that um, his policies are white supremacist policies. So that begs the question, can a black person be a white supremacist? And this is some of uh, what uh, people voting in California, uh, black people but and other people of color have to consider as they're considering whether or not they're gonna make the effort and get out and go vote today. Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, certainly, Larry Elder has styled himself as a representative of white supremacy. That is to say, you recall, I'm sure, his most recent comment that he feels there should be reparations for slavery, not to the descendants of the enslaved, but to the descendants of the slave owners, the slaveholders. Now, I cannot think of a more white supremacist approach and attitude than that. And of course, those of us who are aware of this nation's history should not be surprised by that particular turn of events, uh, because during the U.S. Civil War, we recall that over this battle concerning the future of enslavement of Africans, uh, you had some black people who supported the Confederate States of America. In fact, were in strategic positions in the Confederate States of America. I mean, to cite one example amongst many, the major port that was helping to keep the Confederate states alive, since most of the ports were blockaded, including New Orleans, which was seized by the Lincoln government in 1862, the port I'm referring to is Tampico in Mexico. And that port and the supplies to Texas and other Confederate states was coordinated by a man of color, as he was then called. And with regard to the national signal, uh, we should recognize that what's at stake is this $3.5 trillion bill, the Sanders bill, uh, which would be the most significant social welfare measure uh, enacted in the United States, perhaps since the New Deal, certainly since the Great Society programs of the 1960s that brought us Medicare. And when you analyze politics, you have to analyze all of the different signals. And certainly one of the signals was the 
ham-fisted approach that Mr. Biden took towards the evacuation from Afghanistan, uh, that hurt him and his party, and I'm afraid to say hurt the Sanders bill as well. And so if Larry Elder tomorrow, (laughs) September 15th, wakes up being crowned as governor of California, that will be a devastating setback, not only to the Sanders bill, but a devastating setback with regard to the attempt to repel the coronavirus, a devastating setback with regard to the attempt to declare a climate emergency, uh, it would basically deliver us to the gates of hell. Well, yeah. And the thing about it, uh, Dr. Horn, I mean, you're a historian, you made reference uh, to uh, some history leading up to this moment. But, you know, Dr. Horn, there sometimes is confusion among people who feel, people of color, who feel, well, if somebody looks like me, you know, you and I have African descent. So if somebody's of African descent, that automatically means that they are on the right side of history or even anti-racist. Um, similarly with brown people, but Dr. Horn, you and I know that there's been a long and inglorious history of Uncle Tomism, uh, not only in the, the U.S., but basically throughout the world, on the continent of Africa, in the diaspora, and they also played a role, if not the key role, but played a role in putting down a lot of the slave uprising. So here you have just a couple of years ago, the the Black Lives Matter movement busting out um, cities across the United States, urban, rural areas, countries around the world, a massive movement. And it seems to me now we're seeing the kind of counter revolution uh, happening of that. That may not seem as though it is specifically tied to what's going on in California, but if Um, you hear what you're saying, Dr. Horn, about who this Larry Elder is, Um, we do have to consider all of that. And indeed, Gavin Newsom seemed to have been in some trouble with this recall until um, Elder uh, came on the scene. And now the predictions are that Newsom will handily win. But we can't be so sure about all of that because the polls have been way off in the last two presidential elections as well. Uh, Dr. Horn. Well, I think that the burden also rests with Sacramento and the judiciary. That is to say, why are the rules such that there's a recall election of the governor in 2021? As I understand it, there will be an election for the governor in 2022. Obviously, the rules need to be altered by Sacramento. And in that regard, the judiciary and Sacramento need to take seriously this constitutional claim whereby Mr. Newsom can win 49.9% with regard to those not wanting him to be recalled, but can lose to a candidate on the second half of the ballot who gets maybe 2% of the vote. Now, how can you reconcile that with any definition of democracy? And I think that that's really what's at stake ultimately here because the right wing obviously is moving in an anti-democratic direction. That's the implication of January 6th. That's the implication of 9-18, this upcoming coup attempt on Saturday. And we need to stop that in its tracks. Otherwise, I'm afraid to say we may be facing a kind of apartheid society here in North America, 
that would make apartheid South Africa pale by comparison. Wow. Well, on that note and on that warning, I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. But Dr. Horn, we hope you will be able to join us this Friday for our weekly roundtable. But for our listeners, by the way, we missed last Friday's weekly roundtable. My voice just went out with an allergic reaction that I had, but we will be back this uh, coming Friday. Um, And Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you so very much for joining us and as usual for your analysis and information. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. And again, for more information on where and how to vote, as well as finding a polling place near you, visit sos.ca.gov sos.ca.gov. For the Sojourner Truth listeners, your friends and families, we cannot afford to sit this one out. We cannot assume that um, the election won't go uh, to the Trumpster. They've certainly been out in full force uh, supporting their guy, uh, Larry Elder. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Actually, what I'd like to do now is to just take a, a early, actually, uh, station break. And when we return, we'll get the latest on what's happening with the child tax credit um, and also the black farm workers, the, their debt relief. A lot going on with that. Dr. Horn made reference to the Bill Back Better, Biden's Bill Back Better program, the bill um, very much at stake uh, right now. The child tax credit uh, hanging (laughs) to see if it will be extended or if it will end uh, just at the end of this year. So stay with us. You won't want to miss any of that. We'll be right back. Aretha Franklin, Rocksteady. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We also always like to uh, thank our listeners in so many affiliate stations across the nation uh, who are listening to Sojourner Truth. I think the latest is station uh, in New Mexico. So uh, thank you so very much for that. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Please check out our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the U.S., we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across Southern Illinois, um, in particular the rural uh, areas in Southern Illinois, where we do have a listenership. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to our cloud listeners in the UK, in the UK. 
And we are now going to turn our attention to what's happening um, in Washington, D.C. with the child tax credits. Um, many of you listeners, you hopefully have been getting your checks for the child tax credit. Uh, they're saying approximately 39 million uh, families um, benefited from the child tax credit. And now House Democrats have released a new plan aimed at expanding the child tax credit through 2025. Now, Back in March, U.S. President Joe Biden included the expanded child tax credit in the American Rescue Plan. Qualifying families may now receive up to $3,600 per child uh, if the child is uh, below six years of age and $3,000 for those between six and 17. And these can be paid in uh, monthly payments of up to $300 per child if the child is under age six, $250 per child ages six to 17. And um, these, of course, is an increase from the original $2,000 per child, given that families fall under certain income thresholds. These thresholds are less than $150,000 for couples and $112,500 for uh, single um, people. Uh, but they're single families. A lot is at stake right now because of the uh, many people um, in the uh, movement for cash in people's hands were hoping that the House Ways and Means Committee would come out with a proposal to make the child tax credit permanent. They did not. They extended it uh, through 2025, but we're going to be getting more of those details from our guests. But first, let us hear uh, some moms talking about how the child tax credit uh, checks have helped them. We're looking forward to just kind of having be able to pay our property taxes and pay on the mortgage, you know, get ahead on utilities. The tax credit is available for joint filers earning up to $150,000 a year and heads of households making up to $112,500. In Youngstown, Ohio. You like these in the front as well? Yeah, that's okay. Mothers like 28-year-old Cassandra Singh said the pandemic forced her to choose between parenting or a paycheck. I have three children, 20-month-old um, twins. It's been really tough on everyone not being able to go to work because we don't have a babysitter and when all the daycares close down. The credit equals several hundred dollars in monthly payments for Jasmine Hollinshed and her three children. My checks only be like two, a little bit over that. Um, so that, that, would, that would be a big, big difference. Hollinshed says she recently started working 20 hours a week at a deli. After staying home during the pandemic to care for her kids, the money will more than double her monthly income, but it won't last long. I have a car note that's 250, then my rent, then my electricity, clothes for them, shoes because they're growing every day. The White House says the enhanced credit will help more than 39 million American families at a cost of an estimated 110 billion dollars. All righty. So uh, that is a clip, by the way, from CNN. I'd like to welcome our guest, Anna Aurelio 
who is the federal campaign director of Economic Security Project Action. Uh, Anna has fought for the public interest for nearly three decades as the DC director for Environment America and prior to that as the legislative director for uh, US Public Interest Research Group. Anna led a team of advocates and mobilized grassroots members and state networks to win policies to cut pollution, to protect public lands, and boost renewable energy and auto fuel economy. She helped create the Climate Action Campaign a coalition of national environmental groups working to win national climate action and the Green Scissors campaign, which recruited bipartisan support to cut billions of dollars in government spending for wasteful, harmful programs. Anna, welcome. And I, I, I really am now learning about your work on the environment. I know your work with the Economic Security Project Action. Thank you for joining us, Anna. Oh, hi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Right. So, Anna, um, there's some, well, good news and there's some bad news. Um, let us talk about um, what the, the positive things that came out of the House Ways and Means that have been discussing the child tax credit and when you think some action will happen uh, from the House. So what does it say right now? And, and, and perhaps, um, you know, right out of the gate, we should say, doesn't uh, propose making the child tax credit expansion permanent. Anna. Yeah, thanks, Margaret. So literally this morning, the House Ways and Means Committee is taking up the section of the Build Back Better plan that looks at the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. And as you put out in the introduction to this piece, I mean, you know, all families should have the ability to succeed and the child tax credit is going to fundamentally um, help people succeed, whether, you know, you're middle class and need help with college savings or whether you need money to meet your basic needs like food and housing. Um, and what we have been pushing for and so many other organizations have been pushing for is let's take the one-year expansion that's estimated to cut child poverty nearly in half and after two rounds of checks has already cut food insecurity, has helped people stay in their homes, has helped people um, you know, even find better jobs because they can pay for child care, for example, or get their car fixed. Um, let's make that last until the child is 18, uh, not until the end of the year. So let's make that all permanent. So there's good news in that the House Ways and Means Committee uh, contained an extension of the child tax credit and earned income tax credit. And three important points here. One is a piece of the child tax credit changes that were made really um, fundamentally changed the child tax credit from a system that sort of perpetuated the racial economic inequity in this country and, and really rectified that. And by that, I mean the refundability part. Until the American Rescue Plan was passed, the child tax credit um, didn't go to families making no income or very little income families didn't get the credit. So that's 27 million children were left out of the full credit um, because their families didn't make enough money to get the full credit. And that was disproportionately black and Latinx children. So nearly half of black and Latinx children did not get the full credit compared to about a third of their white counterparts. So one thing that the American Rescue Plan did is it made it permanently refundable. It made sure that the people who need it the most are actually going to get it. And in so doing, it really righted a historic wrong. 
Um, that's very important. And the very good news is that the House Ways and Means Committee package makes that section permanent. Um, so that's a very important piece. The second thing that the House Ways and Means package does is it restores eligibility to nearly a million children around this country um, who are immigrant children, um, their families file taxes, but they don't have social security numbers. These children were always eligible before the Trump tax law in 2016, and the Trump tax law actually raised taxes on those families by making those children ineligible in 2017. So the House Ways and Means package now restores eligibility um, to those children. Again, we're talking about people who are in this country, a lot of essential workers, a lot of dreamers, people who really could use the money. So they're in. Um, the, the downside to the House package is it doesn't make the credit expansion permanent. It doesn't um, make the $3,000 or $3,600 if you have younger children. It doesn't make that piece permanent. That goes until 2025. And so that's what that, that House committee is now mowing right now. Um, I will say one thing, which is it also makes the earned income tax credit expansions permanent. And those are um, expansions that would hit low-wage workers um, so that they would get a higher earned income tax credit. These are people who don't have children but are working in low-wage jobs, and that would help those workers. Um, so, so some good news, still a ways to go, and then we are just at the beginning of the process. Um, so there's, there's a lot more work to be done. Right, and I wanted to ask you about this, Anna, because there is an editorial in the New York Times by Patrick Brown, who is, um, you know, his group Ethics and Public Policy Center partners with the Institute for Family Studies, a conservative think tank. And they're putting out information that I'm not quite sure, well, certainly seems to be lopsided because they're saying that polling finds that child tax uh, credits have lagged in popularity, and they're referred to a YouGov American Compass poll that found that only 28% of voters said they preferred the expanded child tax credit to be made permanent and go to all families regardless of whether they quote unquote work uh, to earn money. Uh, first of all, that is one poll. And I, I wondered what has been the experience of the organizations across the nation that um, you have been in touch with and also the response because certainly the child tax credit is something that I support as you know I, I work on uh, mm -hmm. to put that forward for to, to just for transparency here and we have found that it has been extremely popular. I mean, even among uh, some uh, Republicans, some Trumpsters that I've talked to who are getting the money and, and find it useful. What has been your experience? What are you hearing, Anna? Yeah, that has absolutely been our experience. And we've seen a lot of polls that actually show a majority of people support the child tax credit. And as these monthly payments have gone out, so there's been two monthly payments, one in July, one in August, and the next one will come out tomorrow, actually. And as they've gone out and people have started to experience the real benefits, um, the popularity keeps increasing. As you point out, even, uh, you know, amongst uh, quite conservative people, because, you know, like everybody else, they were hit by the pandemic, by the economic downturn, and they're struggling to make ends meet as well. So what we're seeing is that, you know, there's real support 
for um, getting a monthly payment that helps you make ends meet, that helps you, um, you know, have even less stress in your life. And the, the Census Bureau does surveys of thousands of families across the country to ask them, you know, how did you spend the money? How is this changing your life? And one of the most striking things from the last round of payment is actually food insecurity. Now, I know you know, and I know, and folks who are listening know, we're the richest country in the world. There's no one in this country that should live in poverty or go hungry, and yet the sad fact of the matter is people do. And one of the most powerful findings from the last survey of thousands of households after the child tax credit came out is that hunger was reduced. So Latinx families especially saw um, food insecurity go down by one-third, and Black families saw food insecurity go down by one-quarter. So this is having visible, tangible impacts in people's lives. The polling that we've seen shows that it's extremely popular and the popularity is actually growing. Um, and we're hearing stories like you played at the beginning of the hour where people are saying, you know, this is helping me, whether it's helping me meet my groceries, um, heartbreakingly, uh, you know, I, I'm Italian. I like to feed people heartbreakingly. One woman said, I can now feed my kids three meals a day. We don't just have to do two. Um, or people who are able to um, buy sports equipment for their children so they can engage in sports or they can save for college. So it's having a real impact and it's having, it's allowing people to live the kinds of lives um, where they feel secure that they can provide for their families. Right. And by the way, um, Anna, also in what the House Ways and Means has put out, because we had found that a lot of people actually didn't know about the child tax credit. So in California, for example, the Poor People's Campaign in California did a statewide um, effort uh, getting word out about the child tax credit, as did many other uh, organizations, including the Economic uh, Security uh, Project. But the it does what come, came out of House Ways and Means, from what I understand, allocates a billion dollars um, to help get the word out, to help enroll people. And this isn't just for intergovernmental agencies, but also for the nonprofit sector uh, to get the word out about the child tax credit. But um, Anna, just a little bit, of, we just have a couple of minutes left on the backlash that we see happening right now. And unfortunately, it centers around the ongoing discussion uh, that has been raised in the women's movement and increasingly gotten attention given COVID of what is work and who is a worker? Because you have Republicans who are now saying, um, including um, Senator Mitt Romney, who are saying, well, yeah, we are for a, a tax credit, but we think that it should be um, you know, tied to mandatory work, just in the way that welfare payments became a workfare-type program. Uh, and to many of us as who've been working on the whole issue of uh, caregiving and, and recognizing unpaid caregiver, this is really a slap in the face uh, to moms and, and other caregivers, unpaid caregivers, to say, you know, what you're doing isn't really work, right? So you shouldn't get the child tax credit unless you go out and do any job, go out and flip burgers uh, at, at McDonald's or whatever, but taking care of your own children and your own family, well, that's nothing, <laughs> Um, so yeah. this is part of the backlash that's coming up now, and there may very well be a push, including when it gets to the Senate, um, assuming that this bill, as it is now, will pass the House, 
where people are going to try to implement measures like that. And then you have Manchin, who is opposing the entire uh, Build Back Better uh, bill, saying that um, what Bernie is saying of 3.5, um, the 3.5 figure has to be cut in half. Uh, just your final thoughts on all this, Anna. Yeah, my final thoughts are, number one, there is a work requirement in the child tax credit in, in the Biden plan, and that is that you are a parent or you are taking care of a child. That is real work, and I challenge anybody who thinks it isn't to spend one evening with a crying baby. Um, so, you know, <laughs> or an hour, one hour. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's let's just get rid of that myth. And you're right. It's 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 really it's really um, it's it's cruel, and it also doesn't value the work that so many um, people do who give care. Um, particularly women, particularly women of color. So that that is a total myth. Um, the second thing I'll say is that we need to stop pretending that there isn't enough money in this country to solve our problems. There's plenty of money. And instead of going backwards like the Trump tax law did and giving you know the bulk of tax breaks to the wealthiest and the corporate um, entities in this country, we need to start looking at the people who need it the most. And that's exactly what this child tax credit does. And it'll lift It'll cut child's poverty in half. How can you be against that? Uh, how can you be against helping people meet their basic needs like rent and food and utilities? So I, I think the more people who are getting this child tax credit see it and, and weigh in and say, you know, we need, to make this, we need to make this thing permanent. This needs to last until my child is 18, not until the end of the year. This is too important. Um, I think that is how, that is how we're going to win the day. Um, and, and just this morning, I was watching the Ways and Means Committee markup, and one of the Republicans on the committee had the gall to say that the Trump corporate tax breaks actually trickle down to really benefit low-income people. And, you know, that is, that is a myth that has been put to rest by economists, by actual mathematics, but it doesn't matter because they'll just keep saying it. And that's why, again, it's so important to just reinforce the fact that this is a monthly payment. It's showing up in people's lives. The more people tell their story about what it means to them and we get the actual reality of what this is doing in people's lives, I think that's how we're going to be able to win. Right. And of course, there are um, just, Anna, just a flag for you. We don't have time to discuss it now, but I'm sure that will be ongoing as this thing moves through uh, Congress. The wing of this movement that I am part of, the Care Income Now movement, as you know, we want the child tax credit to go to the mother or whoever is the primary caregiver. And we're very, very concerned about something that we saw um, in what in the markup that came out about um, the child tax credit, if uh, th there's not a parent involved, but if it is, you know, a specified relative, that the relative with the highest adjusted gross income for the taxable year, it seems to imply that they are the ones that will be chosen, which to us is a kind of a economic uh, profile that ends up in many cases um, impacting, um, you know, people of color. So those are just some of the areas uh, that we have to flag. But Anna, everybody's work is cut out for us to make sure that all of this happens, that it remains uh, permanent, and it keeps uh, the good things that have come out in this markup from House Ways and Means. And Anna, you have been vigilant <laughs> tracking all of this and getting information out, and we really so, uh, so including this morning, so we really so appreciate uh, your work and the efforts of uh, everybody working on all of this. Thank you, Anna.
Well, thank you so much, and I, I love your show. Alrighty, thank you, Anna uh, Arito, who is the Federal Campaign Director of Economic Security Project uh, Action. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we're now going to wrap our show up with um, the what is happening with black farmers. We uh, did a, a show a while back about the discrimination that has happened uh, against black farmers historically and uh, about a $4 billion uh, federal debt relief program that should have started back in farmers of color who are in need uh, but as of last month nothing yet ha has yet to be distributed so we'll find out from our guests if that has a change overall five billion dollars was allocated for the emergency relief of farmers of color act four billion for debt uh, forgiveness on USDA loans and $1 billion for outreach programming and financial support for research education at historically black colleges and universities and also land grant universities. But the rollout of payments have been held up by lawsuits filed by white farmers who are claiming it is reverse discrimination. 13 lawsuits filed in 10 states, three nationwide injunctions claiming discrimination against white farmers. I mean, here we go again. You do something for black folks and all of a sudden it's gonna be discriminating against uh, white people. Well, we're gonna find out um, why uh, black farmers should indeed have more than earned uh, this level of support. I'd like to welcome our guest, Loretta uh, Pisciano, who is the executive uh, director of the Rural Coalition, which has served as a voice of African American, uh, American Indian, Asian American, Euro American, and Latino farmers, farm workers, and rural communities in the U.S. As indigenous and as well as indigenous and campesino groups in Mexico and beyond for 40 years, uh, Loretta, um, delighted to have you back. Thank you for joining us. Margaret, we're so glad to be here. Okay, Loretta. First of all, for our listeners who may be, uh, you know, of the ilk, well, is this truly discriminatory uh, to give office support for black farmers? Why? was this support needed? Tell us, you know, just paint a picture for us about historically what has happened to black farmers. Well, you know, what's happened over time with black farmers is um, there's been a long dedicated campaign. Um, remember it was, it was land that gave um, farmers and the African-American community some of the power it had in the civil rights community. I mean, in the civil rights struggle and land ownership and a lot of it is about somebody wants your land and so what had happened is oftentimes um some of the black farmers went to usda and requested the same sort of um financial aid and loans that many other farmers got to buy land to purchase equipment and to do the things every farmer needs to do to farm we should keep in mind that um 
the the response black and indigenous farmers across the u.s they've been campaigning for urgently needed debt relief from the u.s department of agriculture and this is in response to centuries of systemic oppression and displacement and over the last century alone black landowners in the u.s south have lost over 12 million acres of farmland mostly from the 1950s onward and this is according uh to the Atlantic and Joe Brooks, the former president of the Emergency Land Fund, a group founded in 1972 to fight the problem of dispossession, estimated that about 6 million acres were lost by black farmers between 1950 and 1969. And Lorette, back. Lorette, let's see if this is this sound is a bit better. Hi. Okay, is this a little better? Oh, this is this is just fantastic. And just to update you, I just told our listeners about the loss of acreage, how much uh, acreage was lost to, to, to black farmers um, historically. So you carry on then with, with your point about the need for this, Lorette. Right, and shout out to our good friend Joe Brooks, who was a leader in tracking this issue. So, you know, a lot of it is about land. And what happens is many of um, the black farmers and all BIPOC farmers we work with, um, that's the main thing that you have that, that they're going to be able to participate in. There were all these other pandemic relief programs. If you were growing row crops and other kinds of things where extra benefits like, you know, $14 billion in trade adjustment assistance. And then there was a um, coronavirus food assistance program. You know, some of the farmers we worked with, they qualified, but they got like $400. And so no relief was reaching them. And so the senators, including Senator Warnock and Booker and the chairman of the House Ag Committee, worked very hard. And the Senate Ag Committee, um, you know, um, Senator Stabenow, worked very, very hard to try and figure out what can we do to keep these farmers in business as well. And what they realized is the main thing they could do is forgive their loans and clear their debt. So because they weren't getting other benefits, they weren't able to make their loan payments and were in danger of losing more land or in danger of not being able to, you know, have the kind of uh, farm that's going to support their family. And so that's why loans were looked at. And, you know, you could forgive loans for many other farmers. The problem was this was a budget bill. There were limited funds. So they basically said, let's have the BIPOC farmers be first in line this time. And that's where they said, you know, the, the, you know, Sid Miller, the secretary of agriculture in Texas, who we don't even think has the loan, said, I can't get into that program. It's discrimination. And so, you know, that's that's basically the basis of it. Yeah, and I mean, you have uh, black farmers in, in Mississippi who are, are complaining that uh, aid was paid um, to, for example, to white foreign workers who, by the way, were being abused in the immigration system. But meanwhile, black farmers were not uh, getting the support, not that they were against um, the, um, you know, others getting the support as well. So tell us now, what is the latest with this? Because this money should have been released and started being paid out. But at least as of last month, you know, it wasn't. Is there an update on that, what's happening with this money? And also any update on the lawsuits that have been filed? Well, you know, on the lawsuits, so basically what's happened is USDA has kind of worked um, 
to try and look at all the other cases and the case in, in Fort Worth, Texas, the Miller case, um, they've kind of consolidated on that one. And it's very interesting because when we were working on, um, you know, all the discrimination lawsuits against USDA, it took over, over a year to get a class action lawsuit certified. This court in Texas got that certification in two weeks for two classes of white farmers. You know, one that couldn't get into the program and then anyone who's excluded from the definition of socially disadvantaged. So that is probably one of the weaker lawsuits. And USDA has tried to get stays in all the other cases and just cite the case in, um, in Texas. But it's not a winning situation because this is going to go to the Supreme Court. And what our real worry is, is none of these things are going to be handled soon. The, 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 um, the case in, you know, as you know, that's the case that was brought by the America First Foundation, which was formed by Stephen Miller and Mark Meadows. There's another case in Florida led by the Pacific Legal Foundation, and they're suing on behalf of one white farmer in Florida and they've gone to Texas and said, we don't want to be a part of these classes. We want to do our own case. Um, but the problem is once it gets to the Supreme Court, there's no clarity that there's any way to get this resolved because the program says only BIPOC farmers. You know, every place else we use that definition, it was like, you know, it was part of a larger program just to say, you know, people of color farmers need to get some of the aid, just not all of it. So, um what the problem is, is the farmers are now waiting and, you know, some right. of them didn't pay the loans and they're not getting guidance and they're at risk of, you know, losing their land and nobody's telling them what they can do. So we're trying to work on that issue. And then we're pushing very, very hard to make sure. Um, and I know there's work in Congress going on, but we haven't seen it yet. The final result to try and include some form of debt relief that would go to a wider group of farmers. We are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, so True Radio. .org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at So True Radio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.